John 17, 13 through 21. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may, be may believe that you have sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. We are this fall returning to some fundamental questions, and we're trying to answer the question, who are we as a church? Who do we want to be as a church? And uh, last week, we talked about the fact that we want to be a midtown church, which is a way of saying we want to be in midtown. As a community, uh, we want to be so embedded into the fabric of this part of the city um, so that we may bless it, so that we can pray for it and, and seek its flourishing in, in every dimension of what it is. That's what we mean when we talk about being in this part of the city. In fact, you even see this language reflected in our passage. John 17 is an amazing chapter. It is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer where he's praying to his Father on behalf of his people, on behalf of his disciples. And, and look at what he prays in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's saying, I don't want, Father, don't take my people out of the world. I don't want them to be separate, disconnected. In fact, look at verse 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Christians are always called to go in, always called to go into the context, into the cities, into the cultures in which they find themselves. So that's what we talked about last week. And for this morning, uh, I want us to think about what it means to be distinguished from the context in which we find ourselves, to be in Midtown, but not of Midtown. And what does that mean? In fact, you even see that language reflected here as well. Um, he says in verse 14, I have given them your, world, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then he says it again in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now, what does it mean to not be of the world? What does it mean to not be of a place, uh, not of Midtown? Uh, in, in a word, it means to be a counterculture. It means to be a counterculture. Brett McCracken, I put this little... Uh, quote at the beginning of your bulletin. He's an author. He's written a handful of books. He has uh, written several pieces in Washington Post and uh, uh, Wall Street Journal, Christianity Today. I came across this, and I thought it was really helpful. Here's what he says. The local church was never meant to be a cultural, comfortable, bourgeois social club that affirms people in their idolatry and helps them along on a journey to their best life now. 
On the contrary, it was meant to be a counterculture, a set-apart community embodying a radically different vision for human flourishing. It's an amazing quote, but what, what does it mean to be a set-apart community? What does it mean to be a counterculture? Well, there's a lot that we could talk about this morning, but I want to just draw out three ideas from this passage. To be a countercultural community means that we have a countercultural authority. It means we have countercultural values, and we worship a countercultural God. Those are the three big ideas I want to explore with you this morning. We have a countercultural authority. We have a counter. We have countercultural values, and we worship a countercultural God. What do we mean when we say uh, we have a countercultural authority? Let's start there. Um, the word authority really gets to the idea of who has the right to tell you what to do. You know, we have two small children, and often we will hear one of the ch ch children, one of the childs, say to the other child, uh, you know, do this or stop doing this, and then the other child will respond, you're not the boss of me, and that's the instinct. That's the idea. The idea is like, you're not my authority, because authority is who has the right to tell me what to do? Who has the right to tell me what is true? And that question has been answered by our wider culture. The, the, the culture's answer to that question of who has the right to tell you what to do is pretty simple. It's you. You are your own authority. That's the answer. In fact, that's, um, that's just kind of everywhere. David Brooks um, is a New York Times columnist. He wrote a fascinating article a couple of years ago called Five Lies That Our Culture Tells Us. It's a, it's a very small, very simple, easy little article, but he articulates this idea that you are your own authority better than I could. Here's what he says. He says, you have to find your own truth. This is the privatization of meaning. It's not up to the schools to teach a coherent set of moral values or to society. Everybody chooses his or her own values. Come up with your own answers to life's ultimate questions. You do you. Now, this is obvious, this is just kind of everywhere, it's omnipresent in our culture, this is just the air we breathe. In fact, you remember a couple of years ago when everybody was singing uh, Old Town Road? Well, I'm gonna take my horse to the, you know that one? Of course you do. Um, well, our children were around the house singing that song, you know, it gets to the part where it goes, can't nobody tell me nothing. And our children are singing this in our house, we're like, whoa, we can tell you something. We could tell you to sing a different song. And so they were singing this song, but that's the idea. That's the message is can't nobody tell me nothing. I get to do whatever I want. In fact, if you think about this phrase, uh, follow your heart, this is a phrase that, again, is kind of an omnipresent phrase that says nobody has the right to tell you what to do. You just have to look in and decide what your own heart is telling you to do and then follow that. Dan Doriani, who is a seminary professor, he's an author, theologian, he did this cultural analysis of that phrase, just follow your heart. And he, and he said, it you know, shows up, every, where does this show up in movies? And um, this is a little bit outdated, this is maybe 10 or 12 years ago, so some of these references are dated. But he said um, that Follow Your Heart is the title of three different movies, all of them scored below 35 on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and, then he, and then he gives this list. He says that phrase, Follow Your Heart, it shows up in Care Bear movies and Ella Enchanted. Captain America follows his heart. Napoleon Dynamite followed his heart. Richard Gere followed his heart in Pretty Woman. Braveheart said, follow your heart in 14th century Scotland. Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner followed his heart. Even in Outer Space, 
Battlestar Galactica. Luke Skywalker followed his heart and he blew up the Death Star. Matt Damon bought a zoo because he followed his heart. Goodwill Hunting followed his heart. Bradley Cooper followed his heart in Silver Linings Playbook and as an FBI agent in American Hustle. I told you these, you know, 10 or 12 years, these are a little dated. But you think about, okay, this, this, the references are endless, and there are even more since when, this, when he created this list. But that, the point shows you that the culture's answer to that question, who has the authority to tell you what to do and to tell you what's true, the answer is you. You're, 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 you're the authority. And the Christian community has um, a countercultural um, response to that, uh, 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 where we submit to an authority that really cuts against the grain of what um, the culture around us tells us. In fact, let, let me show you. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word. Jesus tells his father, I have I've given my people your word, the words from your mouth. And then verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is saying that the Father's very word is truth. And as Christians, we believe that God's word is supremely revealed in the Bible. Now, I know that's a um, massive claim to make. I don't have enough time to kind of unpack everything to that. But, you know, for, for Centuries, as long as the Christian church has been around, in one way or the other, the Christian church has submitted itself underneath the authority of the Bible, of the scriptures. And here's what this looks like practically. It, it, it practically means that we say that the Bible stands over us. It has the right to judge us, not the other way around. We let it critique us, not the other way around. And so just use me as an example. I have an instinct in me to want to hoard my stuff, to want to hoard my money. And the Bible comes to me and contradicts me. And it says, no, be generous. Relinquish your hands from your stuff. Give it, share it, care, give it away to people in need. And I can look at the Bible and I can ignore it. I can uh, look at it and say, well, you're not the boss of me. I can do whatever I want. Or I can submit to it either willingly, gladly, painfully, but submit to it. Here's another example. I have another instinct inside of me to uh, retaliate when I'm hurt, when, I'm, when someone's hurt my feelings, when someone's offended me. There's this instinct in me to want to um, make the other person hurt for doing that, to defend myself. I'm not wrong. You're the one that's wrong. Which, by the way, my wife loves this instinct inside of me. It's her favorite. And, um, but the Bible looks at me, and it contradicts me. And it says, no, you repent. You take the log out of your own eye. You relate in humility. And even you seek to pray for and bless the very people that have hurt you. And you can look at that and you can ignore it or you can submit to the authority of it. Point being, here's this. If, 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 you're, if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, and I know not all of you do, but if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, do you let the Bible offend you? Do you let it contradict you? Do you let it override your instincts? That's you submitting to it. That's you saying, I'm recognizing it as my authority. If the Bible has become palatable for you, meaning it perfectly fits with your natural understanding of how the world functions, it could be the case that you have made yourself an authority up over it and you have domesticated it to fit into the way that you see the world. If, it, if the Bible really is God's word, 
if it's God's word, that means he is over us and it has to always at some point contradict, offend, press in on all of us because it's God's word. It's over and against us. So if we have a countercultural authority, that is going to lead to countercultural values. Let's look at that secondly. What do I mean by countercultural values? Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus is saying, my people are going to be a a counterculture, and what that means is at times, the world around them are going to hate them, not like what they are doing and what they are believing. Now, people don't tend to hate subcultures. Uh, five or six weeks ago, for the first time, I went to the Memphis Chess Club. Y'all ever been there? That place is amazing. Awesome coffee shop downtown. And the whole thing is like a, about chess. Like people, the whole subculture of people that play chess in Memphis had no idea about. They have the whole coffee shop just for them. Every table has, you know, chess boards on it. There's a whole room downstairs where you can do chess tournaments. All the paraphernalia, all the screens are about chess stuff. Had no idea there was this cool subculture right down the street. Now, my guess is nobody in Memphis hates them. I mean, maybe there's some checkers purists that, uh, that are not a fan of what they're up to over there. But for the most part, it's like, yeah, that's, that's cool. Y'all do, y'all do that. But Jesus says, you know, the, the church is not a subculture. It's a counterculture, which means at times the world will hate us. The world will not like what we're up to. Um, that's because we have values that run up against the dominant way of thinking. It's, it's, it's culturally defiant. It's culturally revolutionary. Uh, I included this uh, quote at the beginning of your bulletin. I want to read it to you. This is a le- it's called The Letter to Diognetus. Scholars believe it was written around 130 AD or so. So it's this old school letter. It's written by this man, a Christian man, who's written to this other dude named Diognetus. You can Google this. You can read the whole thing. This is just a little excerpt here. But I think what's so helpful about this little letter, this ancient letter, is it gives you a window into what the early church looked like and felt like and what, they oper- what, what, it, what did the early church actually look like on, on, you know, in their context. And this gives you a really interesting picture of it. Let me read it to you. It says this. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and they have children, but they do not expose them. By the way, that's referring to this ancient Roman practice called infant exposure, which if you, if you had a child and you didn't want to keep it, you would just expose it to the elements. You just kind of throw it outside, throw, it on, you know, throw the child on a trash heap, and it was kind of, in some ways, kind of an ancient form of abortion. And he says, early Christians did not expose their children. They, they share their meals, but not their wives. 
Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. They live in poverty, yet enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference, their response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors, but even then they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. Now, that's a lot there. That's an amazing little section. But I want you to see that that gives you a picture of values that the early Christian church was living under. And I want to draw out five that you could highlight from this passage. Here are five values that the early Christian church was operating by. The first value was um, they were against infant exposure, which again, you could say was an ancient form of abortion. Uh, Second value, um, they believe that sex was designed by God to operate just within the context of marriage, since they don't share their wives. Now, you just think about those two values, against abortion and pro-family value, that sounds very conservative. Sounds like a very fundamentalist, old-school, traditional, conservative group. We'll keep going. Here's the third value. It says that they um, shared their meals. They lived in poverty. They, they were radically generous. And what we know from other ancient documents is that they took their resources and they thrust them out primarily in the communities that were living in poverty and primarily into uh, communities that were marginalized. Strong commitment to what you might call social justice. Here's a fourth value. You don't really see it explicitly in this excerpt, but you can see it from other documents and even from the New Testament itself, that the early church was, was radically multi-ethnic, that they were bringing together races of people that did not get along well in the world out there, and yet here they are in this community all living and doing life together. So you have social justice, racial equity. You think, wow, that church sounds very liberal, very mainline, progressive, Okay, well, here's the fifth value. It says that they, when they were abused, they respond with blessing. They were committed to non-retaliation. They were committed to forgiveness. It, it, it says that, um, you know, when, when they were insulted, they responded with kindness, with blessing. And, and now, as Americans who live in a very litigious, uh, outrage culture, cancel culture, we hear that and we're like, that doesn't, I don't even, that didn't make any sense. I have no reference point for what that looks like. Now, you put all five of those values together, that doesn't fit in any particular label. That's a counterculture. That's a counterculture that is most definitely going to offend the left, the right, and the middle. That's a counterculture, to have values that don't fit into any particular box. Now, you think about us in our modern context. What does it look like for us to have countercultural values right here in the middle of Midtown Memphis in 2021? Well, there's a lot we could talk about. Let's just talk about two. Let's talk about money and sex, just to keep it light. Um, uh, the, the, Tim Keller says that our culture tells us to hoard our money and to be promiscuous with our bodies. Hoard your money and be promiscuous with your bodies, with your sexuality. And the kingdom of God tells you to do the exact opposite. The kingdom of God tells you to be stingy with your sexuality and to be promiscuous with your money. 
to be generous with your money. That's because the kingdom of God is based on an ethic that is others-centered. Our current cultural moment tells you the thing that should fuel your life is whatever makes you happy. You get to just do you. Whatever makes you happy, that's the only reference point. But the kingdom of God says, no. You were designed to love God and to love others. That is an orientation that is primarily away from yourself, to love God and to love others. And if you have an others-oriented ethic that is going to shape how you think about your money, because you begin to see, okay, my money is no longer just for me. This doesn't exist just for me. And therefore, it is a gift that God has given me to steward as I love him and as I love my neighbors. And so I can give it away. Is it wrong to enjoy it for myself? No. Is it wrong to enjoy nice things that money can buy? Absolutely not. It's just not the whole point of why money is a thing. It's given to help you know how to love God and how to love other people. And if you start to begin thinking, okay, this is other-centered ethic, this is how I think about money, then that shapes also how you think about sex and sexuality. Because the way that we think about sex in our current moment is that sex is a thing for me. I won't use any of the language, but I could if we, it would be too crude for this context. But even the language that we use to talk about what sex is, it's, it's all self-oriented. It's what you can get. But sex is designed by God as a gift that you give yourself away to somebody else, which is why the Bible says sex most, most importantly is, belongs in the context of marriage. Now, you hear that and you think, oh, my goodness, how primitive and fundamentalistic can we get? It's 2021, pastor. But think about this. Um, God designed sex as a way of communicating that all of me belongs to all of you. Sex outside of marriage can't communicate that. Sex outside of marriage says, I'm going to give you access to my body, but I'm not going to give you access to my bank account. I, I will give you this moment, but I, I can't promise you tomorrow. I can't promise you the rest of our lives. I can't promise you the future. Sex within the context of marriage in which God designed it is a way for God to say, a way for you to say, all of me belongs to all of you. That's the only way that you can communicate that. It's an others-oriented ethic as you think about your sex, as you think about sexuality. Now you step back and you think about your whole life. Here's the question for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, and again, not everybody is, do you find yourself at odds with the culture around you at different points? Not because of your politics, not because of your personality or your, uh, your, your, your relationship to the pandemic, but because of your faith in Jesus. For by following this countercultural man, Jesus, it has, it has made you become somebody who lives by countercultural values. That's part of what it means to be a countercultural church is that we begin to find ourselves distinguished at odds from the world around us in different ways. And the only, the only reason why is because we worship a countercultural God. And that's the last thing we need to look at briefly. What does it mean that we worship a countercultural God? Uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great. The subtitle is How Religion Poisons Everything pretty clear where he stands on the whole subject. Uh, he describes himself not as an atheist, but as an anti-theist. And, and here's what he says. 
He says, I think this was from an interview that he gave, actually, but uh, here's what he says. Quote, I think it would be rather awful if it were true, if there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did. You would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea, end quote. Now, here's how he sees God. God is this trigger-happy dictator up in the sky who's watching everything you're doing, controlling everything you're doing because he's like, he's like big brother up in the sky because he's making demands on you and he, he wants to take things from you. And you think about, okay, if, that, if that's what God is like, I don't want a God like that to exist either. That God is not great. I agree with you. That sounds horrible. But that's not the God that we have. I want to walk through this passage really quick with you. Every, almost every verse in here, you see that the God of the Bible is fundamentally outgoing, self-giving, generous, uh, others-oriented. L- look at verse 13. Jesus says, and these things I speak in the world. Okay, why? Why are you speaking these things in the world? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He's saying, I'm doing what I'm doing so that other people can have joy. Verse 14, I have given them your word. He gives. He's generous. Look at verse 15. He prays that God would, quote, keep them from the evil one, which is a way of God, a way of him asking God to protect his people because they're vulnerable. They need protection. Verse 17, he prays that God would sanctify them in the truth. Again, he's asking God to do something on our behalf. We can't do this on our own. We need God to do this for us. Verse 19, at the very beginning, why does he consecrate himself? He tells you, for their sake. Almost everything in this passage tells you that the reason why God does what he does is for other people, for you. In fact, this is really just a way of Jesus embodying what John wrote about in another letter that God is love. God is essentially, fundamentally, always and forever an others-oriented, kind, generous, self-giving, loving entity. That is who God is, which is unlike every other worldview that is out there. Every other religion says, yes, the gods can save you. They can enlighten you. They can give you nirvana, whatever. But you have to jump through some hoops. You have to earn it. You have to, God, you have to give God a reason to love you. And what we've done in our kind of modern context is we've just kind of deleted the whole idea of God as, a, as, a, as an idea. And what that has done is it's created this black hole inside of us where everything now gets sucked up inside of us and we become the center of the universe. Uh, the universe. We define ourselves. We define what is true for ourselves. And this inward pull towards ourselves has not made us more loving, more compassionate, more generous. It's made us more self-centered, more entitled, more petty, more thin-skinned. The God of the Bible is so different from every other option that is out there. The God of the Bible is radically countercultural and counterintuitive because you have a God that is generous freely because he loves to. In fact, you see this generosity and this love of God supremely in the cross. 
What do you see in the cross? For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave away his very son for the people that hated him, for the people that were petty and self-centered and rebellious. It's not that we earned it. It's not that we did something that got his attention and made him want to do this for us. It's not that we groveled and we pled and we had enough sorrow and sincerity in our hearts that activated some compassion in him. No, he did it freely because he's a God who is love. When you know that, yes, I have been rebellious, I have been self-centered, I have been curved in on myself, and yet he still chose to love me anyway. He was that sacrificially good and generous with someone like me. That is the only thing that has the power to pull you from outside of yourself so that you become not self-oriented, but others-oriented. You start to become more like God. You start to love God, and you start to love others. And the gospel of grace and the gospel of his love is the only thing that will do it. So, who do we want to be? We want to be a countercultural church, not because we think that's cool, not because we want to offend or upset people. On the contrary, we would hate, we hate that. But because we serve a countercultural God, we serve a God that goes against the grain of every rational instinct that we have. We serve a God that traffics in contra-conditional grace, and we can't serve and worship anything else. Let me pray. Father, I pray that your love would be so mind-blowing to us, so compelling to us, that it would indeed create a chain reaction inside of us, that it would ripple through us personally and echo throughout this community and this very church, that we would become people so grounded by a willingness to submit to you, a willingness to pray, not my kingdom come, but your kingdom come, a willingness to have a, a heart and a life marked by radical charity, radical kindness, radical love for neighbors who may disagree with us, may not like who we are and what we're doing, and yet help us to walk in the ways of Jesus who gave himself for the very people who hated him. We pray all this in the name of our King.